listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. So last week when Jason began his message, he starts out with this question to us about, you know, what was your first car? And people around the audience raised their hand, and they're like, the coolest cars. I'm like, what? What was wrong with my life? So some of you might have been feeling the same way, right? So you might have been thinking that you started with a junker in life. So I wanted to make you all feel better. James has a picture of my first car. It was the rousing 1987 Plymouth Horizon. This thing was just, I mean, this is its marketing brochure, and it did not get any better than that when I had it in real life a few years later. But I have to tell you, uh, in my family, it was the, one of the reasons I bought it was like the third one that our family had owned. So that whenever, like when I was in our new and our married life, when things would go wrong with a car, and they did, when things would go wrong with this car, I'd pick up the phone, call my dad. Hey, dad, you know, here's what's going on. He'd say, oh, you're about 54,000 miles, right? And he goes, yeah, then you need to do this. So there was always like some story with which we could do to fix the car. But the fact that I ended up with like sort of a cruddy first car should not really be surprising at all. So uh, maybe, I don't know if it's 15 years ago or so, there was things called newspapers around, and there was one of them that used to be called USA Today. I think maybe it's still around. Not very much anymore, but the USA Today did this little thing on the 10 worst cars of all time. And my family had owned not one, not two, but three of those uh, top 10 worst cars. And unlike anybody else in America, we actually owned two of them at the same time. We had a little Ford Pinto, the thing that, that, for those of you that are really young, what the Ford Pinto was known for is that if you got it rear-ended in an accident, the gas tank blew up. So, I mean, that seriously happened. It happened a lot. And we didn't have, you know, a good Ford Pinto. We had the bottom-of-the-line Ford Pinto. We lived in New England where they put salt and sand down on the roads to make it so that you can drive in the wintertime, and it makes your car rust out. So this car was like a rusted bucket of bolts. When the doors would open, they would sag. So to close the doors, you'd have to pick them up and pull them in like this to shut the doors. And my brother and I would ride in the back seat, and the bottom of that car had rusted out so much that the only thing between us and the ground outside was that little Ford Pinto uh, carpeting in the back seat. So that literally was all it was between us and the road. So at the same time, though, that we owned this Ford Pinto, the other car that we owned was an AMC Hornet. American Motors Company, those of you young don't know it, but in that top 10 list, they sort of dominate the market. They were like the guys that made the Gremlin and the Pacer and you name it. But the Hornet was probably their ugliest car of all time. Some of the other ones actually look good. And the interesting thing, when you own a Pinto and a Hornet, you'd think anytime you own two cars, at least one of them ought to work at any one time. Not when you own a Pinto and a Hornet. There were an inordinate number of times where neither one of our cars worked. So that's how you end up with having a Plymouth Horizon as your first car and, you know, deal with it from that perspective. So on to more serious topics. So we've been going through this series on the whole topic of rest. And um, if you're new to us or uh, haven't been through sort of the sequence with which we go through a, a year here at the church, we often take July as a time of rest. And it's built into sort of the flow of what the year goes like. And it's, it's really built on principles that we find in Scripture as well. 
Uh, the Bible tells us that when God created the world, he does that in six days, and on the seventh day, he rests. He didn't do that because he was tired. He did that to show us a principle of rest as well in our own lives. And so uh, part of what we do in the month of July is to focus on that. And this month, this year, we're doing a series of messages on this as well. Here's a little bonus for you just to show you the importance of rest uh, there's been a lot of studies done on aging in populations that are particularly able to reach uh, highest average ages. And there's a group in Japan that's like that and a group in Europe that's like that. And there's a community here in the United States, and we actually live right next door to it. The uh, people in Loma Linda have some of the uh, longest average lifespans of any community in America. And they point to three factors uh, for that uh, in the studies that they've done. One is the diet that's eaten, and this is particularly true within the Seventh-day Adventist community, uh, as being healthier than the typical American diet. Uh, two, that they live their lives in community, in faith community, where there's a relationship where people care about each other even as they go uh, deep into life. And then the third reason, though, is the fact that they've committed to a period of rest in their lives. So God's made us needing rest, and so uh, part of what we're doing in this sermon series is to talk about how to do that. And today we're going to be looking at finding rest in the storms of life and those difficult things that happen. So uh, I don't know if it was maybe about a month ago or so that Pastor Jason had asked uh, me to do uh, this particular topic in this particular sermon and, um, you know, sure, and I start thinking about it, and, um, and honestly, uh, our lives have been turned upside down since that point. I probably have never wrestled, and I know I've never wrestled through the problems that we've had in life that Jody and I have experienced over the last two or three weeks. And, uh, and I know there's somewhat of an irony dealing with this, and I'd love to tell you that everything I'm speaking about today I've been able to apply in my life, but I'm still wrestling through it uh, because what we've been going through has been extremely difficult and challenging and uh, a true storm of life. I want to begin today, though, by looking at Mark chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 35 to 41, if you want to turn in your Bibles to that passage. Mark chapter 4. Verses 35 to 41. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. It's Jesus speaking. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I want to go back through this now and just sort of make sure that we understand sort of what's going on and then we'll draw some truths to it as we contemplate this whole concept of finding rest in the storm. So it describes them getting into a boat. And we, we now know from some archaeological digs that have taken place in the, that area that this boat was probably somewhere between about 25 and 30 feet long. So not small, but not particularly large as well. It would have been between about 7 and 8 feet wide. It would have had a single mast, so a single sail on it that they would have used to uh, make progress across this body of water, the lake, uh, Sea of Galilee. 
uh, would have had four rowing stations on it. So sometimes when there weren't strong enough winds, uh, the people that were on the boat could have uh, rowed to make it make progress. It says in verse 37, in a great windstorm arose. That word for windstorm means a furious squall. It's a severe storm. It's the same word that might be used for, the, uh, for what we'd call a hurricane. And what was interesting about it is the geography of that region created these particularly intense storms. So the Sea of Galilee is actually located about 700 feet below sea level. So it's surrounded on almost entirely by uh, high hills, high cliffs that surround the sea. And what happens, particularly as you go into the evening time, there's this big temperature inversions. The cool air that would have been at the higher elevations wants to move down towards the body of water as the warm air moves up um, in that area. And these temperature inversions cause particularly severe storms. But you got to think a little bit about who was getting on this boat, right? It was this group of disciples who were very familiar with the Sea of Galilee. In fact, four of them had made their living fishing on this body of water. They had been out in storms before. So the fact that they react that the, the way they did helps you understand that this is actually a bigger storm, a bigger uh, deal than they've experienced. This wasn't their first rodeo. They'd been through storms before, and the fact that they react the way they do tells you that this is very significant. It was above and beyond what they were typically used to experiencing. And what is their response? They wake up Jesus and they tell him, don't you care about the fact that we're, we're dying here? And uh, he calms the storm for him. He gives them a little rebuke. But I want to see from this that there's four lessons that I think that we as believers can take from this passage of Scripture that I think are really important. So the first is this. His promise, Christ's promise, is sure. So in effect, he begins this passage by saying, get in the boat, we're going to the other side. There's nothing that happens over the course of the next whatever amount of time that they're on the body of water that changes the promise of what he said. He said, get in the boat, we're going to the other side. And what happens is the storm of life comes up and they doubt the fact that he really meant what he said. How often do we do the same kinds of things in our own lives, right? When those, we, God's given us something to do, he's made it clear what his will is, and then the storms of life come up, the difficult things that we face on an everyday kind of basis, and, and some of the ones that are once in a lifetime kinds of deals attack us in some kind of way, and we forget what God has said to us. His promise is sure, get in the boat, we're going to the other side. Second thing that I think I want you to notice from this is that nothing happens here that's a surprise to him. He, they shake him awake, right? He doesn't wake up and say, oh my goodness, there's a storm. I did not see this coming. You know, this is a big surprise to me. No, he, he's like, what's your problem? I can take care of this, right? And that's our tendency in life as well. We find ourselves in difficult circumstances and we're saying, God, how in the world, how can you let this happen to us? How can this be going on? Why, is, why am I experiencing this in this kind of way? But we have to remember nothing is happening to us that's a surprise to him. He doesn't wake up and is startled by what we're experiencing. Third thing that we can take from this passage is that he has the power to take care of our problems. So what does he do for these disciples that are on the boat? He calms the wind. He says, peace be still. And the winds calm, the seas calm, the rain stops, and the situation is taken care of. What's interesting about it, when you think about the problems of our life, God has the power to calm those storms that we're in. Amen. 
doesn't happen every single time, I have to tell you. Sometimes what does he do? He holds our hands while we're going through it. He picks us up and carries us through it. But God has the power to calm the storms that we find ourselves in in life. And then the fourth thing I think we can gain from this passage is he wants us to trust him. In verse 40, he gives them a rebuke. He says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? His rebuke was not, oh, you could have done what I did. You could have calmed the storm. Why didn't you just, you know, uh, believe as deeply as I believe and then you could have calmed the storm. His rebuke was the fact that I told you already that we're going to the other side. I told you, get in the boat, we're going to the other side. And your faith, your lack of faith, is why I'm giving you this rebuke right now. You doubted the fact that what I said could be done or would come true. So as I was working on this message, though, it made me really want to stop and think about the fact why in the world do we experience these tough things in our lives, right? Why do we have to go through these difficult problems, these things that are, are not fun at all to go through? Why is life so hard? Why do we deal with, you know, uh, relatives and, or even parents or even ourselves with, with disease or cancer or, or uh, heart problems or diabetes or whatever it is? Or why do we deal with broken relationships, uh, divorce, uh, you know, a relationship with a spouse that's not the way that we want it to be? Uh, why do we deal with, with uh, addictions and issues that are just significant in terms of tearing us apart? Why do these bad things happen? Well, Jesus has given us in his word in John 16, he says something that really uh, tells us that this shouldn't be a surprise. What does he say to us? Jesus says in that passage, in this world, you will have trouble. He's promised it to us. He said it's going to happen. And the reason it happens is because we live in a broken, fallen world. We live in a messed up world that's not the way that God intended it to be. So when our desire as human beings, when we go through tough stuff, is to blame God and say, why am I going through this kind of thing? And the thing we have to recognize, though, is that this, this world is not the way that he made it to be, that he wanted it to be. When God made the world, it was perfect. And he made us as human beings in his image. And because we were made in his image, because we were like him, and because he wanted us to be in relationship with him, he made us as individuals with free will, with the capacity that when we chose to worship him, it was a choice that we were making. Because this is the kind of God that he is. And so there it is, Adam and Eve are in the garden, and they're in this perfect relationship with God. And he says to them, as he looks out in the garden, you can eat of any tree, of any fruit of any tree that's here in the garden, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what did Adam and Eve end up doing? They end up eating of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And at that moment, at the exact time where they do that, uh, they've disobeyed God, and sin enters into the world. And so at that moment, that's when the fall happens. That's when the, the brokenness that we experience in life began. Because that, uh, what Adam and Eve did introduced sin into the world. That sin nature that we've inherited from them can still be seen in the world around us. Happens through the bad things that we do and what we experience in the world around us. And this whole aspect of the fall causes this fracture in the relationships and the way the world was intended to be, the way God wanted it to be. Because first of all, he made us have a vertical relationship with him. We were designed, we were made, we are made to be in relationship with God. The Bible describes it that uh, for Adam and Eve, God actually came and walked with them in the garden during the uh, afternoons. Can you imagine that kind of a relationship? 
And what happens is that at the moment they sin, God can no longer be in their presence because God cannot be in the presence of sin. So their relationship is fractured. They know it. They're hiding from him because they feel a sense of guilt over what they've done. That vertical relationship is broken at that moment. It's not the only relationship that's broken. It was also the horizontal relationship between man and, his, and woman, between Adam and Eve, that's broken because of the fall. What happens? God had made them to be in a perfectly complementary relationship. And at the moment where they sin and God confronts them, what do they do? They blame the other one. It was her fault. It was his fault, right? And it fractures the relationship that exists between man and woman. And you see in that curse the uh, what we're still dealing with today. It says in the, in the curse in Genesis chapter 3 that uh, man would lord it over the woman. And that's what we still experience in, the, in our brokenness of our world that we live in today. And it wasn't just our vertical relationship with God. It wasn't just our relationship between human beings, but it was our relationship with our environment that was also fractured in the fall. God made Adam and Eve to have a responsibility, caring for the garden, being, living at one in many ways with the world that was around them. They uh, gathered fruit, they named the animals, they took care of his creation, and at the time of the fall, that relationship is fractured as well. Part of that same curse in Genesis chapter 3 is the promise that man would now have to make his living by the sweat of his brow. Work became a difficult challenge for him, and it happens because thorns and thistles grow up and choke out what he was ten, uh, trying to raise as food. So man's relationship with God is fractured. Man's relationship with man is fractured. Man's relationship with the environment is fractured in the fall, and man's relationship with himself breaks as well. When we're in perfect relationship without sin, uh, we have the proper view of who we are as human beings. The introduction of sin into the world causes there to be a breakdown between man and himself, things that go on in our mind. We're now filled with negative self-talk, inaccurate pictures of who we are as human beings, of uh, doubting, of anxiety, of depression, of mental illness. All of these kinds of things are results of the fall. So when we say, why in the world do, we, do bad things happen? It's because we live in a broken, messed up world and we're experiencing the results of that on an everyday kind of basis. I wanna give one caution though. There's um, a group of churches around the world uh, that um, they believe in what's called a prosperity gospel and it's this idea that one of the aspects they would believe is that if you're living the kind of life that you should be living, you won't be experiencing hardship in your life. That you can equate uh, God's blessing to being obedient to God by the good things that are happening in your life, maybe particularly in terms of wealth. It's craziness, guys. It's not true at all. Um, I mean, you only have to look at the life of Jesus Christ, right? He lived a sinless, perfect life. And how did his life end? In the ignominy of uh, dying a death on the cross, the most painful, the lowest of all deaths in that time period. Uh, or look at the Apostle Paul. I mean, there's probably nobody that we could look at and say, oh, well, there's somebody that had it all together spiritually, right? And, uh, you know, wrote nearly two-thirds of the New Testament, uh, was a Christian of all Christians, and when he looks at a passage, or when he writes a passage like uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, verse 24, he talks about the fact of how many times he'd been beaten, uh, how many times he'd been shipwrecked, uh, all these kind of depravities that he had experienced because he was a follower of God. The reality of the matter is, is when we live life in a broken, fallen world, we're going to experience difficult times. 
So I want to finish today just by looking at three, uh, three truths from Scripture that will help us understand how uh, we can deal with, how we can find rest in the storms of life. Uh, first one I want to look at can be found in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Uh, Philippians 4, 6, and 7 says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So it starts out with this, do not be anxious about anything. I don't know about you, but um, certainly been true over the last two or three weeks. Whenever I go through difficult things in my life, uh, my tendency is to wake up at about two or three o'clock in the morning and start thinking about these things and thinking about them and thinking about them and thinking about it. And it's, it's the worst, right? It's destroying your sleep. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm anxious about it in that moment. moment. I'm overthinking it. I'm thinking the worst. You know, it's, it's just a horrible kinds of thing. And so what Christ's answer to it, uh, what God's answer to it is this. He says, uh, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. So he's given us this sort of formula and approach to how we handle it when we're dealing with these stressful storms of life. Prayer is just our conversation with God. Uh, supplication is this idea of a petition that's given, like we, we bear our heart, we beg God for action on, the, on the, whatever the issue is that we're dealing with. And I have to tell you, with what Jody and I have been going through over these last uh, few weeks, I don't know if I've ever spent as much time doing what I would call supplication, where I've just been begging God to work in the situation that we're dealing with. And it describes it as doing it with thanksgiving. Why do we do it with thanksgiving? One is because we serve the God of the universe, and when we're actually bringing a prayer request to him, he can do something about it. There's a big reason for thanksgiving. And thanksgiving is a reflection of the fact that he is going to act uh, even as we're bringing and making this request known to him. And it says in verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God. So the source of it is that it comes from God. Therefore, it's a special kind of peace. It describes it as a peace that sort of surpasses all understanding. It can't be described. It can't be understood uh, so this means that when, when life sucks, when life is horrible, when you're going through the worst things that you can imagine, God can give you a peace that does not make any sense, that is beyond anything that can be explained. So um, Jody and I have been dealing with a situation. So last Saturday, we had decided we would invite our best friends over, and we, just, we wanted to share with them what we were going through. And uh, so we, we, they came to our home, and we shared, and we cried, and we shared some more, and we cried some more. And, um, you know, it was just, uh, you know, it was, it was good to have this conversation with them. It wasn't like they had any solution for us other than to listen to us and let us know that they loved us, and they were sorry that we were going through what we were going through. And as we finished, though, that day, um, they offered to pray for us. And um, as the wife prayed... Uh, this verse came alive to me because there was this incredible sense as uh, she prayed and um, that this incredible sense of peace came over me. And I can't understand it. I can't explain it. 
in any kind of way because it wasn't like anything was better in the situation we were dealing with. Nothing had been solved. It wasn't like they had any great advice for us in terms of what to do. The difference was that the power of God came over my life in that moment and it gave me a sense of peace that I cannot explain. It was impossible from any kind of earthly way to understand it, but God's peace came over me in that very moment. It's interesting when you look at what this peace does. It says... Uh, it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When we're going through the difficult things of life, these are the areas that are attacked. It attacks our minds, and it attacks our, our hearts uh, as it relates to our relationship with Jesus Christ, right? Um, when we're under attack in these kinds of areas, it's our minds, it's how we think about things, right? Remember Ricardo in the first uh, series, the first message in this series, talked about our tendency for our minds to engage in negative self-talk. That's what happens when we're going through these stressful, difficult things. Our minds start to tell us things that aren't really true. And particularly as it relates to the nature of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Oh, you can't trust him. He can't take care of this problem. Uh, you know, you're, what you're doing in church on Sundays, that's good enough for there, but the tough stuff of life, forget about it. God can't solve that problem for you. That's how our minds start to work when we're going through these really difficult things. And it's not just our minds that are protected uh, through this peace that God gives, it's, it's our hearts as well, and our hearts are being the center of our emotions, right? We can feel empty, we can feel discouraged, depressed, emotionally spent, and again, God's peace will protect this area of our lives as well. He protects our heart. So that's the first way that we can find rest in the storm, is through prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. Second thing is uh, the promise that God, uh, God has made that he's overcome whatever it is that we're dealing with. I read to you a little bit earlier, or quoted to you the beginning of of John 16, 33, where he says, in this world, Jesus promises us, in this world, you will have trouble. But the rest of it is a promise of hope. He says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That's incredible. It's a great promise for us because we recognize that the end is sure. He's telling us to be encouraged, to find joy, to take heart because the fate of the world is certain. Ultimate victory has already been obtained. His victory is sure. Wrongs will be righted. Justice will be done. And it's a promise not that it's going to be better immediately. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's peace be still and the storm goes away. But uh, other times it's a promise that what I'm dealing with now is temporary. It will not last forever. And that ultimate victory has been secured. That righteousness will be done. That God is in control and that he has overcome what it is that we're dealing with. Then the third thing that we see, we can actually find in James chapter 1. And I'm going to look at verses uh, 2 through 4. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So it starts out with a command. It says, count it all joy. And I thought about that. I thought, well, that just, you know, it's hard. It's not easy to do this, right? It's part of the reason why it's a command. 
if it was easy to do, like, hey, it's a good idea if you would do this, then it would be there as a suggestion. But it's in there as a command because it's not easy for us to do to find joy in the middle of very difficult situations that we're in. I was reflecting on this uh, as it related to the situation that Jody and I have been going through, and I thought, there is one significant joy that I've found in this situation. It's that as we've gone through this together, it has drawn us closer together than we perhaps have ever been in our 27 years of marriage. I cannot imagine what it would be like to go through what we've been going through on our own without having the other uh, to go through this journey with us. And so uh, that is my source of joy in the middle of this situation because it's not been easy. It's been particularly uh, difficult. So it says to count it all joy in when we deal with these trials, when we deal with these difficult challenges, when we go through these storms of life, and there's a reason why for it. It says that the testing of our faith, these trials of our faith, produce what he calls here steadfastness, which is perseverance. Let me explain a little bit about what that is. Um, When a person is a new believer, or uh, even if you've been a Christian for a while, and if you've not grown in your faith, there's a little bit of a tendency for your faith journey to be a little bit like this, right? We come to church on a Sunday morning. It's a really good worship experience. Uh, There's a message that really touches me. Uh, I feel a connection with the people I'm with. I have a spiritual high in some kind of a way. And then sort of Tuesday comes, and I've hit the bottom. I've engaged in the sin that I've been trying to get out of my life. Uh, my, you know, mother-in-law that I have a really bad relationship with has said something horrible to me, so, and I feel like there's nobody in the church that cares because I haven't heard from anybody in 24 hours, or whatever it is, there's this tendency for our spiritual lives to have this kind of up and down kind of tendency, and that's not God's intention. You can sort of see that his intention is that we have this steadfastness in our faith because it describes it as steadfastness as it has its full effect, as it means it reaches its uh, its completion in you says that you may be perfect, which is the word mature. It's what we'd use, the word we'd use to describe a fruit when it's ready and ripe and ready to be picked, so that we may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. So God's design for us is that when we become a follower of him, when we have a relationship with him through the work of Christ in our lives, he puts his Holy Spirit inside us. And that holy, the role of the Holy Spirit is to grow us to become more and more like Christ. So what, it, what it's saying in this passage then is as we go through these difficult experiences, these big trials, the, God's desire, God's hope for us in this is that we begin to develop a steadfastness in our faith, that we no longer have a faith that's marked by these big highs and lows, that we have this steadfastness in faith that's this reflection of the fact that we're becoming more and more like Christ. I'm gonna close with this today. I don't know what you're going through. Um, I hope you're not going through what Jody and I have been going through over these last few weeks. It's been extremely difficult, but I know in a congregation this size, there are a lot of you that are going through some really difficult things in your life. A relative that um, is dealing with cancer, a broken relationship with a spouse or with a parent or uh, with a child. dealing with addiction-related kinds of issues, uh, dealing with uh, financial issues where your job or your situation in life is not what you want it to be. And you find yourself like those disciples on the lake and the Sea of Galilee uh, in the midst of a, a significant storm. I just want to remind you of what Christ said at that time. He's given you his word. He says, get in the boat, 
we're going to the other side. There's nothing, nothing that will happen in your life that takes you away from that promise that he's made to you. And he is powerful enough to overcome that situation that you find yourself in right now. He has the power to say, peace, be still. He has the power to hold your hand and to carry you through what you find yourself in in life. There's nothing that you're in right now in life that's a surprise to him. He's not waking up thinking, oh my goodness, I don't know how you got yourself into that mess. You're, you're on your own in this one. No, I mean, what you find yourself in right now is not a surprise to him. And what he's asking for you, what he's challenging you is that you'd have the faith in life to trust in him that when he said, get in the boat, we're going to the other side, that he really meant it. Let's have the worship team come up and uh, finish our service. Let's bow in a word of prayer. God, we love you. Oh, so often we wish we did not have to go through these storms of life, these difficult challenges, these things that we endure and, and struggle through. And yet your word and who you are is sure, it's clear. Lord, you've said to us, get in the boat. We're going to the other side. And Lord, we claim that promise. We hang on to it. We know that you're not surprised by what we face. We know that you're, you're more powerful than what we're dealing with, that you have the power, Lord, to say, peace, be still. And God, there are times where you do that for us, and we're so grateful, and we ask for that now in the situations that so many people in this congregation are dealing with even now, Lord. God, we know that you're looking to grow our faith. We know that we can trust in you in these difficult times. Thank you, Lord, for that. Thank you for what you do. And Lord, as the ushers come forward right now, and we take our, our morning tithes and offerings, it's a chance for us as, as believers to give back to you a portion of what you've given to us, a chance for us to support the work that you're doing through this church, whether it's here in our, our local area, through the ministry we support in Tijuana and Spain, Lord. I just would ask that through the gifts that are given today, Lord, that you would both Bless uh, uh, and make possible the ministries of this church, Lord, and bless those that are giving uh, to your glory. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You are listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.